Hello? Is this thing on? Hello? Hello? Sorry, everybody. Something seems to be wrong with our power supply. Uh-huh. Hello? Um, maybe try another outlet. Uh, wait a second. Uh, let's play some music in between. We'll be right back, everyone. From know-how to wow. I think it should be working now. Now we got it. The Bosch Global Podcast. Welcome to From Know How to Wow. My name is Melina Odworth. And I'm Jeff Gustaitis. Jeff, I have a question for you. What's the longest time you've spent without electricity? Oof, man, uh, not long. Uh, only a couple days when camping. Uh, even then we had, you know, car batteries and chargers for the smartphones. It's crazy how much we depend on electricity, isn't it? So we shouldn't take it for granted. And new challenges could make power supply even more unstable in the future. Today, we want to look at one way to fix that and how to ensure a resilient and always available power supply. You know what? I mean, I've tried pretty hard before, but for this episode, I really had to turn into a physicist slash chemist. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, I, and I know you're going to tell <laughs> us all about the latest Bosch technology that uh, will help soon uh, help our ever-growing hunger for electricity. Um, but before we get to that, Molina, what do you think is the worst place to be during a blackout? I mean, I can think of a lot of places I wouldn't want to be during a blackout. A ski lift, for example. A Ferris wheel also would be terrifying. But the worst um, probably would be an elevator, I think. Yeah, definitely not a great place to experience an outage. Uh, even worse if it's on the 40th floor or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you feel it already? Closing in around you. Feeling a little claustrophobic already. But hey, good to know that this was just a very well done sound design illusion. Yeah, for that, we are lucky. But here's someone who has experienced a power outage a few floors higher up. I'm one of the few unfortunates on this planet who has had to live on a space station without electric power. Oh, my God. Wait, what? Did he say space station? <laughs> That's right. Did uh, he say that? On, <laughs> he did. On the Russian space station, Mir. Uh, which no longer exists. Uh, but in 1997, Mike Fole was up there when the cargo spacecraft named Progress uh, collided with the Mir. It was the news. Russian space station damaged in collision with a cargo vessel. The New York Times. Mir at half power after collision. CNN. Docking crash cripples Mir space station. The Washington Post. The collision created a leak and air pressure dropped inside the Mir. And as a result of that, we had to disconnect electric power cables from the solar arrays to the rest of the station to isolate the leak. Oh, goodness. And then, after a short while, the batteries of the mirror were drained. So then, the space station with Michael Fole and two cosmonauts in it was spinning around the Earth with no power, no light, and most importantly, no heat. We went through a number of we call them orbits, turns around the Earth, for, which last an hour and a half at each time. We went through a number of orbits where the station was 
completely dead. Or can it get any worse? We had flashlights or torches with batteries in them, and that was the only way we could illuminate anything. No fans are running to move the carbon dioxide away from our faces or deliver the oxygen to our lungs. And so we would basically float in front of a window with starlight to illuminate us <laughs> and wave paper across our faces to try and keep the carbon dioxide from poisoning us. And as we floated there in front of the window, you could feel the heat leaving our bodies going through the window. You could feel the cold on the other side of that window. And then, because it was absolutely silent, then uh, we started to hear a kind of a creak, chink, chink. Oh, God. And that was the metal of the space station contracting as it got colder. And as someone with a fear of heights already, that sounds just absolutely <laughs> terrifying. Yep. It was interesting, yeah. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, th I think it's hard to imagine what that must have felt like. Yep. Probably simply helpless is the best way to say it, we so easily forget how completely dependent we are on electricity. Uh, you can't communicate anymore except for face-to-face, -face, obviously. And so the three men were really entirely on their own because they couldn't communicate with ground control. That's correct, yeah. There was no ground control. Now that bit wasn't so bad. <laughs> 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 he didn't lose a sense of humor, apparently. <laughs> no, no, for sure. Uh, Mike's uh, quite the character. Um, wh what they had to do in, in order to get out of this whole mess uh, was to somehow turn the space station so that the solar panels could catch some sunlight. But We had no way of firing the rocket motors of the station to go into attitude because we didn't have the power. So, you know, it was, a, it was a, what you call a catch-22 situation. Mm. We didn't have the power to, to power up the station to do what the station needed to do. Now you call that a lose-lose situation. Yeah. I, I guess they had to get creative to get out of that situation. Or get lucky, or, or both, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, because, by coincidence, Mike Fole came prepared with a creative solution. He wanted to spin the space station. The idea of spinning the station was one I had heard from a cosmonaut who I had flown with on the space shuttle. His name was Vladimir Titov. And he mentioned that when the Mir station base block was first launched, one time it did go out of attitude, it did lose power, and he told me he'd use the Soyuz to reorient the station. The Soyuz? Yes, uh, the Soyuz. They could use the engines of another spacecraft that is already oh. docked to the station mm -hmm. to turn the whole thing. Okay, that's genius. Yeah, but... Jeff, seriously? My <laughs> nerves. Yeah, come on, there's always a but. Um, so the, the commander of the station says, says no. Um, he doesn't think it's going to work because the station is much larger. There's many more modules now, and it's considerably heavier. Well, but I mean, what other option did they have instead of just yeah. trying and find out? That's, Ed, that's exactly what they did. Uh, they don't really have another choice anyway. Um, and... By the way, NASA provides an animation, which we have in the show notes. So what we did was we used a second spacecraft, the, our lifeboat, to spin the station around one axis to try and get the solar rays to catch enough sunlight to charge the batteries to power us up. And then once we were powered up, uh, the Russian ground controllers 
we're able to reactivate our computer systems and get them to fire motors, rocket motors, to put us into attitude. Oh, wow. Come on, a real wow. <laughs> this thing's flying around in space, come on. Wow. But it's a wow of relief. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, yeah, that yeah. kind of wow. <laughs> um, and, and that might have been a little <laughs> premature. There were actually three times uh, when they had a power outage. So Mike Fole thinks that he and his fellow astronauts uh, and cosmonauts uh, during those missions are actually holding the record for most time spent in space without electrical power. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm not sure if, if that's a record anyone would like to break. Yeah, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't for no, sure. No, I wouldn't be going for it. Oh, I really feel like I need to take a deep breath after this stressful story. Yeah. Now let's talk about some more reliable power sources. What do you think? Yeah, please. I got fuel cells. Fuel cells? A fuel cell is a device that is able to convert the chemical energy into electricity. So you always have two electrodes and then you have either protons or ions that move from one side to the other. And by this, you can generate electricity without actually burning fuel, just by the chemical reaction. So that was Tobias Beck from Bosch Research. And I think his fuel cell research is really interesting because fuel cells can actually help to avoid power outages. Plus, they are very efficient and therefore climate friendly. But I would suggest uh, that we start at the beginning. Right. So as he said, what happens inside a fuel cell is a chemical reaction that directly produces electricity from fuel. Mm -hmm. instead of burning the fuel and then using a generator or a turbine to eventually generate the electric power. And how does that work? As I understand, it's a rather simple setup. Put an anode on the one side, a cathode on the other side, and an electrolyte in between. The materials of these three components can vary, to be as explained. But the fuel is typically hydrogen, which combines inside the fuel cell with oxygen, creating water. How exactly that happens depends on the type of fuel cell, he says. For the ordinary fuel cell, what a lot of people know from the automotive industry is the PEM fuel cell, which works at lower temperatures. And there, the conducting mechanism is based on protons. So you have H plus protons, which travel through the electrolyte. And in the solid oxide fuel cell, you have the oxygen ions, so the O minus, which travel through the electrolyte. Solid oxide fuel cell, what Tobias described last in that clip, or short SOFCs, that is what his research focuses on. So what's so special about them? Or maybe the question is, what is a solid oxide in the first place? So basically, the cell is a ceramic or a metal ceramic cell, which is not conducting at low temperatures. And at higher temperatures, the membrane becomes conducting. And so we work at very high or at high temperatures with the fuel cell. How, how high of a temperature are we talking about here? Mm, that's a very good question because it's an important point. Because solid oxide fuel cells, SOFCs, they're not new technology. They've been around for decades, but they weren't really used much because they have a short lifespan. They age quickly, which has to do with the temperature. 
the older technologies, I would say, they had temperatures that were even operated in the region around 800 degrees. And at such high temperatures, you have a lot of different aging mechanisms. So one key point always was to reduce the temperature. So now we're operating those cells at around 600 degrees and there's much less degradation there, for example. But of course, you don't just lower the temperature and everything is fine all of a sudden. Yeah, there must be some kind of trick to it. Mm, yeah, because otherwise it wouldn't have been a problem that took engineers decades to solve. But to be a SAS, his team found a solution. The new technology is based on a metal-supported ceramic technology. So basically you have a metal plate and then the ceramic, very thin ceramic coated on this. And that design is much more durable and comes with a bunch of more advantages. Like what exactly? Good question. So we should take a closer look at what a fuel cell looks like. You might think of something like a battery, car battery, for example. But Tobias told me that the equivalent would actually be what the experts call a fuel cell stack. It is like a battery in the sense that bigger batteries too consist of smaller individual cells that are combined. And the same is true with fuel cells. You have individual cells, which are maybe the size of the palm of your hand, but much thinner. They only produce a small amount of power. But then you combine a couple hundred of them to a stack, which delivers a considerable amount of power. Got it. Smart. But to get the chemical reaction going to start the system, you have to heat it up. That's one of the biggest challenges the SOFC technology used to have because you have this, this whole stack and system which has some thermal mass, so you have to bring a lot of heat in at the beginning. And to do this, you were always limited um, by the amount of heating power and also the, the gradient. So if you do this too fast, you can damage the cells, for example. And that was particular with older cell technologies, that was a big problem. So you had startup times which were more in the in the hours to maybe even days. So you needed one day to really fully heat up the fuel cell. And with this new technology, you're basically not really limited by the cell itself or the stack, but by the amount of heat you want to bring in. So you just need a big enough heater and you can really heat up the system very, very fast. Yeah, because it sounds a little impractical to have to effectively predict your own demand and say, oh, yeah, I guess tomorrow I'll be needing electricity, so let me <laughs> go ahead and heat up this giant mm. thing today. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so that problem is now solved. The new SOFCs can be ready within minutes. And the lower operating temperature also helps in many other ways, I learned from our Bosch experts. Especially when you look at the entire system. Besides the fuel cell stack, it consists of a lot more components. For example, you need blowers to push the fuel and the air through the system, and heat exchangers to use as much heat internally as possible to keep the system on temperature. Those and some other components don't need to be resistant to the very high temperatures anymore. This has also allowed Tobias and his team to make the whole thing smaller. Jeff, you're an IT person, so you know what a 19-inch server rack looks like. Yeah, of course. Uh, I would say it, it's maybe the size of a cupboard or a, a small pantry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can now have an SOFC system with two fuel cell stacks that fits into that size and can deliver enough electricity for more than 20 households. Can, can you put a number on that? Uh, kilowatts, you mean? Yes. Um, that would be 10 to 20. But where does all of that energy actually come from? I mean, electricity comes out of the fuel cell. What's going in? As far as I know, they're, they're working with hydrogen. Mm, yeah, and SOFCs do use hydrogen gas, yes. 
And what happens when hydrogen reacts with oxygen? When you get water, pure H2O. Then that's the byproduct of the fuel cell. Right. It's the exhaust. Hot, relatively humid air. That's all. No pollutants, no CO2 or anything. Which is why it seems like hydrogen is the way to go. Hydrogen is a fascinating element, yeah. I'm Elena, Jeff, do you want to test your hydrogen knowledge and maybe learn something new? Absolutely. Hey, Thomas. Hi, Thomas. Uh, dear listeners, this is Thomas Reintis. He is our researcher and writer for the show. And my very favorite co-worker. Um, did you write this into my script, Thomas? Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go. Welcome to the From Know How to Wow quiz show. And I'm your quiz master, Thomas Reintjes. God, this is exciting. Come on, Milena, you're a physicist now. Here we go. Question one. Why is hydrogen crucial for our life and existence? A, because hydrogen is involved in almost all organic chemical compounds. Or B, because hydrogen is one of the four elements. A? <laughs> isn't it A? I think A, because I mean, I'm pretty sure there's more than four elements. And isn't hydrogen pretty much the basis of, of everything, kind of, and the most common element? Common in, in biological compounds, I think, of carbon. Ah, we go with A, yeah. I'm with you, Melina, A. Yeah, the answer is hydrogen is crucial for life because you find it in almost all organic compounds that play a role in the metabolisms of cells and organisms. So without hydrogen, most of organic chemistry wouldn't exist, and life without it is pretty much unimaginable. Yeah, we kind of said that. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, that would be a bummer, man. <laughs> yeah, well done. I like most of those processes. Okay, here we go with question two. Why is hydrogen one of the most important energy sources? Because hydrogen has the highest energy density, that would be A, or B, because hydrogen lets the sun shine. I'm going to go ahead and go with A on that one. <laughs> yeah, let's go with A again. Are we guessing here, though? Yeah, do you have any reason for <laughs> A? or uh, No, I... I, I, I do believe that it does have quite a high energy density. And also, B, I'm kind of baffled by what lets the sun shine. I don't think I understand that hmm. rationale. A again. The correct answer is hydrogen actually supplies the most important of our energies, the sunlight. Hydrogen is the raw material, so to speak, of the sun, and most of our sun consists of hydrogen. Which oh, so you meant like it lets the sun shine like via fission. Okay. <laughs> Oh, yes, God. because there's nuclear fusion going Absolutely, on that yeah. produces helium, and that releases an enormous amount of energy, and suddenly you're so sure of that, right? Then, yeah, okay, in that context, absolutely. All right. Yeah. Ooh, this is getting awkward. I, was, I, I said before I was confused by the, the wording structure. I, I get test anxiety, okay? Oh, God. Uh, answer A about the highest energy density is almost correct, but there are a few other fuels that have even higher energy density. Okay, all right. Uh -huh. I don't feel too bad about that. Mm -hmm. All right, good to know. Now I learned something. Learned something new and here. So, yeah. last but not least, question three. What portion of the matter in living organisms, so for us human beings, is hydrogen? A, 5% or B, 10%? What portion? I mean, again, I'm kind of confused by the answer. I would have, I would have given Ten. much higher percentages. I mean, we're mostly water, and hydrogen is mostly water, so, or, or water is mostly hydrogen. So I was kind of right, ten. So B, let's then. say ten. Yeah, let's B. say ten. The answer is hydrogen is 
the lightest atom. So that's why it's um, difficult to give it such a high percentage, you know? Yeah. But it still makes up 10% of the matter in human beings. But also hydrogen makes up three quarters, so 75% of all known matter in the universe. I think, Melina and Jeff, you did very well in this quiz. Yes. Two out of three. 66%. <laughs> yes, that's passing. Did I really say that I that I turned into a physicist chemist here? Thank you again and congratulations. Uh, thanks, Thomas. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Thomas. Cool. Hydrogen is really great. I really think that hydrogen could be the future. Yeah. But we're not quite there yet. Today, natural gas is much more common. However, that shouldn't stop anyone from using solid oxide fuel salts, I think. Can uh, I get a little more explanation, please? Here's to be a spec again. The biggest advantage is that the SOFC can work with very different fuels. So you can use hydrogen as a fuel, but you can also use natural gas or methane or biogas as a fuel. So you have the full fuel flexibility, which is really a, a very, very big advantage in terms of the, the world we live in, because currently we're using mainly natural gas or, in, or biogas as a fuel, but in the future, the fuel will be hydrogen. So what you could do is you could run an SOFC with natural gas today and later use the same device and just swap out the natural gas for hydrogen. Right, you could do that. Or to be precise, you can, because SOFCs exist and they're currently rolled out in pilot implementations. I'm sure our listeners would be more than happy to hear about that. No problem. To tell us more about it, here's a real fan of SOFCs. I'm a physicist and I do not know any energy converter who has a higher efficiency than this kind of fuel cell technology. Let me introduce you to Markus Ohnmacht, who here at Bosch is one of the people responsible for bringing SOFCs to market. So he's mostly blown away by the efficiency, he told me, because the research team has been able to push it to 60% and above. Mm, what does that figure mean exactly? That means if you feed fuel into the SOFC, 60% of the energy in that fuel you'll get back in the form of electricity. How does that compare to other ways to convert energy? Yeah, for example, like like coal-fired power plants, so the efficiency is maybe something in between uh, 35 to, to about 40% or 45%. And you can compare this even to efficiencies yeah, for combustion engines like 35% wind turbines, it's in, in the same range, or even solar uh, cells. They have a lower efficiency. And fuel efficiency is absolutely critical, especially considering climate change. Yeah, right. If you use fossil fuels, you really want to make sure that you're squeezing as much energy out of them as possible. Mm -hmm. And that is also something Marcus keeps hearing from clients. We do not want to waste energy in any kind. That means, for example, the, the local utilities, they want to use the electricity out from the device. And, of course, they want to use the heat because then it's a very efficient system and you can provide electricity to the grid and you can use heat, for example, for district heating or providing hot water. So this brings us back to the high temperatures we discussed earlier. You remember? The higher temperature in the SOFCs, A, helps with the chemical reaction in the cells and makes it more efficient. And B, you can actually use the heat Marcus told me that you can't do this with big power plants because they're far away from our homes. 
but with SOFCs, you can generate both electricity and heat right where it's needed. Now, if you include the heat in the efficiency equation, the number gets even better. And so the total efficiency of the system is close to 85, close to 90%. You put something in and you get nearly everything out. And that is really impressive. Uh, basically, that's that's a lossless conversion. But how is that really possible? We already discussed a number of reasons, but there are even more. One thing I realized while talking to our experts is that compared to combustion engines and other technologies that burn fossil fuels, there are some things that SOFCs don't do. For instance, they have no moving parts. Well, almost, except for the blowers that move the gases into the piping. But there are no big masses being moved around, and therefore there is no friction and almost no sound. You can come into the room, you do sometimes questioning, it's running or not. So, so the noise level is, is compared to a dishwasher. And, and, and that's also very exciting from my point of view. Yeah, of course. You know, our Bosch dishwashers are quite quiet. So that's <laughs> really an impressive thing to say. Uh, remember that we want to keep our signal to noise ratio quite high. Was that a short ad break? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no shame. <laughs> Legit. <laughs> uh, but yeah, imagine... All of that, together with the fact that they are very clean, really makes them a great solution for power generations in cities. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. But wait, they're, they're not even actually clean if you use them with natural gas, right? Mm, yeah, not as clean as with hydrogen, correct. Where the exhaust is just air and water, but even with fossil gas, it is a much cleaner solution than others. Because you don't get any of the harmful particles that you get from burning fuels and no nitrogen oxides either. Okay, got that. Um, this might be the right moment to say that I, I totally agree. Um, it seems like you really did turn into a physicist. <laughs> right. So thanks for explaining all the science so well, Milena. Sehr gut gemacht. <laughs> well done, well done. But I mean, it's also a pleasure to me learning so much about this stuff. Sure. And it's fascinating to think about. Can you imagine a world where we replace natural gas with hydrogen? I mean, in order to ditch fossil fuels? Exactly. Let's step into the future and have a look around. We have some wind parks that are not connected to the grid, but just produce hydrogen. Mm, why is that? Because hydrogen is a great way to store energy for longer periods of time, better than batteries. And it's also a good way to transport energy. Otherwise, we would need more power lines, which are expensive to build and which have losses. But hydrogen, you can ship over long distances, even between continents. Yeah, but I mean, that's that's really old technology. You're just storing and moving gas around. Yeah, it is, it is well tested. Plus, we have the existing gas grid. Here in the future, the same gas pipes that once delivered natural gas to people's homes and businesses now deliver hydrogen. Oh, Jeff, do you see all these electric cars? Uh, I guess all the cars are electric by now. Pretty much. Without hydrogen, that would have been much harder to achieve because all the charging stations need a lot of power. But fuel cells, in fact, can produce electricity on location, so it's really easy to increase the capacity. Melina, I gotta say, that was really nice. I'm pretty much looking forward to the future. Same, I couldn't agree more. Marcus says it's not a distant future, actually, so you probably won't have to wait that long. The future of power generation starts today, and it's not only a, a bridging technology, it's a future technology. I see. 
SOFCs can really help us get to that future sooner than later. Yes. Because we can start making use of their high efficiency right now. The reason the future starts now is that Marcus sees SOFCs as a better option than diesel engines, for example, that are in use for emergency power supply at critical infrastructure facilities. Well, not really in use, because most of the time they're just sitting there waiting for the next blackout. You're buying a device which you do not want to use. That means you're spending money. It's something like an insurance, and it's just in the case of an emergency, then you need it. And our idea is just to turn this around. If you have a critical infrastructure, you put there some SFC devices. They will be always on, run all, all the time, and provide the, the, would say the base load or the emergency load which is needed for this critical infrastructure. So by critical infrastructure, you're meaning, for example, a, a hospital. That would be a great use case, but um, also data centers, for example. Marcus is installing... I should have thought about that. Mm, he's installing SOFCs at a Bosch data center to also show that they can react to changes in the power demand. And that flexibility is something that will become more important in the future as well. Does that have to do with the issue that uh, our renewable power generation can be somewhat, uh, let's say, volatile? Exactly. The output of wind turbines or photovoltaic changes depending on the weather. You can't regulate their power output as you can with traditional power plants. SOFCs could help balance that out because you can quickly increase or decrease their power generation. Uh, Melina, you know, uh, by now you don't really have to convince me anymore about the reliability of the fuel cells. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I absolutely trust trust what you're saying, and our, our Bosch researchers, naturally, and, and engineers are saying. Um, but my conversation with uh, Mike Fole was very convincing, too. The astronaut from earlier in the show, mm -hmm. he says that space missions relied on fuel cells for a long time. Uh, you know, the, the space station has solar panels, but the space shuttle did not. On space shuttles, which I flew on, we did not have solar panels. We used fuel cells. They switched them on before the launch, uh, and then the fuel cells would provide all the electricity they needed for the duration of the mission. So his life already depended on fuel cells. And then, of course, the fuel cells produced electricity and water. Super convenient. Mm -hmm. We drank the water produced by the fuel cells. <laughs> um, it tasted good. Indeed, convenient, yeah. Yeah, and, and in fact, the water from the space shuttle's fuel cells provided all the water that was needed on the space station. Um, but there was a problem with drinking that water. Bubbles. Bubbles don't go anywhere in microgravity. <laughs> and one of the byproducts of the water that we got from the fuel cells were there still were little hydrogen bubbles in the water. And we would drink the water and it's like fizzy water. And there was hydrogen bubbles in the water and it gave you bad gas pains. <laughs> and uh, of course the gas ha wants to go one way or the other in your body, um, either burping or, or the other one, farting. <laughs> And um, it, it could be quite an issue. So one of the challenges for the life support system in the kitchen arrangement was to try and re remove the bubbles from the fuel cell water that we drank. It wasn't particularly successful, I have to say. <laughs> oh, that's such a great insight. <laughs> so cool. The, the struggles that astronauts have to face in their daily business. Yeah, hashtag astronaut problems. <laughs> I 
right. I knew that astronaut food was kind of unordinary, but I didn't know they had fizzy hydrogen water with side effects. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I didn't know that either. Um, there's a reason why professional podcasters like ourselves uh, drink only flat water, right? <clears throat> or tea, or wine. <laughs> <laughs> For example. <right>. Cheers. <laughs> How about, uh, how about one last fun fact about space shuttle fuel cells? Oh, yes, please. The shuttle always had more water than it needed. It really was a waste product. The crew couldn't drink that much water. And so we had a number of tanks, water tanks, that literally just had an outlet to space. And we would open the tap and let the water stream out as snow into the vacuum. Oh, God, really? Oh, wow. Snow in space? It was quite spectacular. Yeah, it was good to see. Yeah, it looked like a snowstorm in the sunlight. Oh, so cool. I would love to see that. Thanks for sharing that, Jeff. And Mike, of course. There couldn't be a better way to end this episode, I think. So thanks for listening and come back next time when we talk about more technology of the future. Spoiler alert hoverboards. I cannot wait. Bye, guys. Bye. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. Uh, Melina, can you get the light? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, of course. Let's save some energy here. <laughs>